And you're listening to 94 WIP as we ease on in out of conversation into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and it promises to be a beautiful, slightly chilly WIP Sunday. But no matter where you go, good conversation always here. My name's Peter Solomon, and I'm pleased to welcome my first guest, Stephen Elliott. Stephen is an entrepreneur, realtor, guerrilla marketer, and a whole lot more. And he's creator of the largest face-to-face business network in the state of North Carolina. And he's here with us to talk about 10 ways how anyone can build thousand-member networking groups. Good morning, Stephen Elliott. Good morning. How are you? Is it as rainy there as it is rainy here today? No, it actually promises to be a beautiful day. Oh, well, that's great. Good to hear. My sympathies on your rain. Uh, Okay. It makes the flowers grow. Absolutely. Now, networking, that seems to be an overused word, is it? Well, it, it depends. Uh, I mean, networking is, is essential. It's something that happens uh, naturally, uh, of course. It doesn't have to be forced or organic. And uh, you hear it a lot. It is a buzzword. But I've been doing it my whole career, and it, it, it's been very successful for me. And I found the secret sauce that enables people to build very large uh, spheres of influence through uh, actual live networking as well as virtual networking online. You must have an amazing Rolodex then. I have an amazing Rolodex. In my area, I have uh, 20,000 people in my sphere in North Carolina alone, not including nationally. Uh, which enables me to generate as much business as I can for myself, but it also helps the community that I'm in. I'm able to help other people, which is a, a huge trigger for me and, and gets me excited and stoked to have my large networking events. All right. How do you do it then, Stephen? Well, I utilize uh, as, as my main platform, to get people to my networking events, I use uh, uh, Facebook, and I also use uh, Meetup, and I engage with the people online uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I'm able to generate my business, and I'm, I'm one of the, 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 the top in the country individual agents, 100% through networking. I don't do any door knocking or any cold calls or anything along those lines, I just engage with my audience uh, through social media, and I try to assist as many people as possible without any expectations of getting anything in return. My feeling is you have to give in order to get, and and by giving freely of yourself uh, without an expectation, you're rewarded with great abundance. It's interesting to me, of the mechanisms you use online, you didn't mention Twitter. How come? Uh, I, I don't I don't use Twitter because it's a 140 character system. It's uh, not personal. It doesn't mirror mimic uh, what I do in my events. And, and now currently, you know, I do networking events all over the country with my company Rockstar Connect. I have uh, over 30 events currently going per month. By the beginning of next year, I'll have over 200 events all over the country. And they're all, all the people that attend those events are generated through Facebook uh, and Meetup, a little bit of LinkedIn, 
and of course the old-fashioned sending out an email, uh, picking up a phone. Uh, we're just able to do networking on steroids as compared to when I started doing uh, networking events when I was 21 years old. I'm 48 now, so do the math. That's a lot of time and experience doing networking. Absolutely. Now, you talk about a networking event. What happens at one of these events? Well, I'm I'm one of the type of people that uh, I'm, I'm untrainable, uh, unteachable, and incorrigible. So I can't do everything like everyone else does. So I created my networking events in my own image, what do I like to do? So I do after-hour networking events primarily. Uh, they resemble a cocktail party. People are very friendly with one another. Uh, on their name tags, they don't write, I'm an insurance agent, I'm a realtor, I'm this, I'm that. They just put their first name. Uh, why would that be? Well, what happens when you see someone who wants to talk about your finances? You want to run in the other way. You know you need to talk to them, but you don't want to. So at my events, when people come in, I put a hand on their shoulder and I say, what do you want to accomplish and how can I help you accomplish that? And they come back with a lot of, a lot of things that they want to do. They may want to uh, build a new business. They may want to expand their business. They may want to leave corporate America. They may want another position in corporate America. They may be new in town and they're trying to make friends. So in addition to being networking, it's also friend working and assisting people in achieving their goals. Uh, once you establish yourself as a leader of a networking group, uh, attention is drawn to you, and you're, you're the focus, but you also have to be the macher, the mover and shaker that makes and you know, greases the wheels for these relationships so big things can happen in your community. Of course, you're the person that's helping with that, so you will get rewards. Okay, you decide to have an event. Where do you have it? A restaurant, a hotel, where? Uh, I've done my venues in many different places, but I primarily, with Rockstar Connect, we use uh, restaurants and bars uh, because they're conducive uh, to people having a good time. A little bit of alcohol is a good social lubricant, a glass of wine, uh, very light finger food so people aren't, aren't nervous. They have something to do with their hands. And also, uh, you know, through Rockstar Connect, we book our venues for our clients. Uh, at these type of venues, the venues will usually provide the space for free, and they'll also provide the food as well and sometimes the alcohol because they want to be part of the networking process and present their venue in a really good way. I also like to have a space that's a little smaller than what I need, so that way it's really packed. I don't know how old you are, but I like that Studio 54 uh, mm -hmm. feeling. feel like you're at something really special and the energy is exciting. Uh, smart people, well-dressed people. It, that's the type of event I like. Okay. How do you choose to, who do, how do you decide who to invite? Uh, well, I utilize social media to filter the type of people that I want to go to the event. So the, the content that I've created uh, and curated over the last five years is designed, first of all, to get engagement, people to get eyeballs on it, that may be likes, that may be comments, but specifically the social media I use is about helping other people. Uh, all boats rise together, uh, posts about success, 
and also about having a good moral compass. So that way it filters people before they even get to the event. Some people are going to go, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. That's not for me. That's not the way business is. But that's who my clients and myself choose to do business with. And we're very successful using constant social media posting uh, seven days a week uh, on our platforms in order to get the right people to come to the event. Okay. And what happens? Is it simply cocktail party and everybody have a good time? Is there speechifying? What goes on? No, there's no speech. I don't like speechifying. I don't think it's necessary. What we're about is building relationships. Meet people as individuals. <clears throat> See if there's someone you want to do business with. And then every, it naturally occurs at that point that you'll start thinking of them. They'll be top of mind. You'll be top of their mind. And you'll refer to one another. That person that you meet may not be your client, uh, but they may know the person who will be your next client. Also, like you said, you talked about that big, giant Rolodex. My big, giant Rolodex has been my career. So when you're an attendee at a networking event and you're collecting those cards, and and, and stop me anytime you want, um, take those cards. Don't throw them into into a, a box a shoebox, take them and put them into your CRM. Uh, Make these people part of your daily life. Send them birthday cards and uh, congratulate them when they have milestones in their lives. And they'll remember you for sure. Okay. Who pays for these events? I mean, it's nice to get the space and the food and the liquor donated, but if that's not going to happen, who pays? Well, in, in my case, for my clients, the food and everything is always donated. Uh, we have created a proprietary program. Our client is the host of the networking event. They pay us a very small amount of money, $300 per month. We do all their social media for them for their event, help them do their invites, send out all their invites, do all the posting on their social media, teach them how to post on their social media, book their venue in whatever city they're in and uh, get the food arranged for them, send them their day of uh, event package with all the supplies they need, and it only costs them $300 a month. Now, if you were to do it on your own, though, uh, which I've done, you know, for a number of years, it can be very costly, especially in time, establishing those relationships with venues can be timely. But usually they will provide it for you for free. But if you didn't, you know, if you couldn't, if you didn't have that skill set, it may cost you $1,000, $1,500 to do an event. But typically if you're well networked in yourself already, you can get those things for you. It's just a time issue. I mean, just getting supplies to put together for your event can take you a few days if you don't have someone like us provide you with all the supplies. Uh, we work uh you know, with a really good uh, PR firm, uh, Goldman and McCormick, and uh, they help us uh, get the event information out there. That would be something you would have to do yourself. So networking, albeit it isn't free for most people or inexpensive like what we charge, it's still one of the most effective ways to get business. Now you talk Certainly. About- Go ahead. You talk about something called meetup money strategies. What are those? Meetup money strategies. Well, uh, with uh, meetup, 
Meetup is a very inexpensive. It is a pay-for platform. Uh, your initial uh, your initial fee could be it's about around seventy-five dollars every six months, and for every uh, net meetup group you have, <coughs> you're paying uh, ten dollars per month. But Meetup has some of the best SEO search engine optimization of any uh, company out there that helps you get people to an event. Uh, they just you just plug in the information. You may have zero people that you know who would go to your event who or who wants to network. You put something up with them, and within a week you have about fifty people who are interested in your event. And you can then take your meetup for free and take that and put it on your Facebook page. Facebook is a great way to promote your event. It's a bad way to get invitations out because they limit your invitations. They limit who sees your material. But if you can convert for free your Facebook audience to Meetup for absolutely free, you can have a very big Meetup group. Like my, For one of my events that I've had for a while, my Meetup page has 6,000 almost 6,000 people on it. That's my North Hills networking page. That generates for me several hundred invites every month I do my event. And my own personal event, depending on the venue and how much I promote it or what type of event I'm doing, I can have between 200 and 200 people and 1,500 people coming to the event. Whoa, that's a large number. That's a very large number. <laughs> And sometimes it's funny, you'll use a venue and you can't even fill it up with 1,500 people. But you can imagine why the venues, you know, restaurants and bars want to have your networking event and they're willing to put up a little bit of money to have you there. Because you're bringing them professionals that have disposable income. If the people like the, like the, the um, venue, they'll be back, certainly. Yes, and, you know, once you've created that audience and you, you're known for being able to put butts in seats, part of my French, uh, you can do all sorts of events. I do uh, lunch and learns uh, for specific industries. You know, uh, you know, maybe a medical office is paying me to get people into their office to have a, a networking event. Or a politician needs a few hundred people to show up for one of his events. I'm able to do that because of my large sphere of influence, not only in North Carolina, but around the country. I mean, the, my goal is at the end of three years, is to be doing 2,000 networking events uh, per month across the United States, which is 24,000 events per year with an average of 100 people attending each event. Uh, we're talking 2.4 million people overall that are all interested in helping one another. And that, for me, is the, num is the number one goal. And, hey. you know, helping people is a great way to lead your life. Sure. Absolutely. And you're listening to 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Stephen Elliott, successful entrepreneur, realtor, guerrilla marketer, and creator of the largest face-to-face -face networking business in North Carolina. And he's certainly getting ready to take over the rest of the country with networking. Now, Stephen, I need you to stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time. 716. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My guest this morning, Stephen Elliott, successful entrepreneur, entrepreneur networker. And we're talking about starting your own networking event here on 94 WIP. All right, Stephen, how do you begin? You decide you want to have a networking event. What do you do? I mean, certainly we can hire you, but what well, else do the, you do? 
I think the the best thing to do is to look at your existing uh, your existing sphere. Uh, find five to eight people. That's sort of an arbitrary number, but enough people that that you speak to on a regular basis that they that are part of your tribe that want to help expand your tribe, and reach out to them and say, "I'm getting ready to start my own networking event." I happen to have a lot of respect for you. You're someone I like to model myself off of. I find you to be successful. I like doing business with you. I like your ethics. I like your moral compass. Uh, I'd like you to work with me to reach as many other people that we that we may know, or people you people that you know that I don't know, so we can have a successful first event. And 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 consider that. Most networking events, and I don't know if you've been to many, you go to them, there's only 10, 12 people there. They're not that big. If you can have, you know, 25 people come to your first event, you probably have a really good uh, success. And if five people are helping you do that or eight people, it should be really easy to achieve your goal to have your networking event. That should be step number one. Uh, Step number two, where are you going to have it? Well, you know, your first uh, event does not have to be at a restaurant or a bar. You may not have enough clout to organize something like that, or you don't want to come out of pocket a few thousand dollars. What about your office? What about one of the offices of those five people? My first networking event that I did here in North Carolina was in my real estate office, and I I just bought a couple bottles of liquor and uh, a couple uh, food platters from Costco, and we had a terrific event with, for the first one, maybe 20 people in it. Uh, Once you start doing this and you educate yourself about networking, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet about how to do a networking group. You'll have larger and more successful events. But remember, bring a stack of business cards and collect business cards and then do something with those business cards. I, I, if, if I was to say one thing that people should have, have a really, really high-quality business card, is you're going to be handing out over a year potentially thousands of cards. And the, the nicest, highest-quality card is the one that will be kept and most likely called. Yeah, there's a hot rumor, Stephen, that you're coming to Philadelphia. What's up? Uh, we'll, be, we'll certainly be in Philadelphia. That's one of the areas that, that we're looking at. Uh, we're already in uh, – in New York. We're already in uh, White Plains. We have an event going on in Westchester. We also have uh, another event in Morristown, uh, New Jersey, very well attended. My brother lives in in Haverford, and I'd love to do something uh, very soon in Haverford uh, or in mainline Philly. So if there's anyone in the radio audience that wants to contact me, reach out because we're ready to make you a rock star there. So you can have a, a rock star, high quality networking event. And how do we reach you and get more information about networking? Uh, the best way to find out about uh, Rockstar Connect is to go to rockstarconnect.com or Rockstar Connect uh, on Facebook. All our contact information is there. I mean, you'll see I'm really big into networking. You can go on the LinkedIn. I actually have my phone number there, which is pretty rare. But I think everybody should have their contact information. Simply check out online. Simply check out Rockstar Connect. Right? Yes, rockstarconnect.com, all one word. Well, I'm going to say thank you to Stephen Elliott, Rockstar Connect's superior human being, for being with us and telling us how to do it here on 94WIP. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you for having me. You seem like a really kind soul. Thank you.
and it's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and when we come back in just a bit, a little bit of English history as we talk about Henry VIII, and I think she was wife number five. All this and more here on 94 WIP, WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, the WIP Time, 726. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and we're into the home stretch as we talk with historian, biographer, author Garth Russell. He's talking to us from England, and we're going to learn about Henry VIII, and I believe it was wife number five, Catherine Howard. Good morning, Garth Russell. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, people, of course, remember Henry VIII. If it's not, that movie was Charles Lawton and the Wives of Henry VIII. Um, it's the TV series that had Keith Michelle. Yes. But people don't know a whole lot more, do they? No, they're sort of, I mean, certainly in the United Kingdom, I think they've entered into um, popular culture. And many of our elementary classrooms and um, have uh, fun sort of posters of Henry and his six wives. But beyond that, they certainly have become, I think, um, stereotypes. People certainly think they know lots about them, but the, the actual story, I think, is incredibly fascinating. All right. Then, Gareth, please tell us the story of Henry VIII and wife number five. Well, he was um, he was entering uh, middle age by this point, and he, he, was, um, big, he was at this point really beginning to rapidly put on the weight that we associate him with, those very famous portraits of, um, we might charitably call it impressive uh, physique. Um, as he got older, he had, he was um, married to his fourth wife, a German princess called Anne of Cleves, and they had married for political reasons, and the marriage only lasted six months uh, until it was annulled. And he was smitten with this young aristocrat called Catherine Howard, um, who he married within two weeks of his um, of his divorce from Anne of Cleves. And the marriage initially seemed to be going very, very well, but 16 months into it, uh, a family servant accused her of, um, of, of having lost her virginity before she married the king. This subsequently led to an investigation into her private life, and she was eventually um, accused of adultery and executed in February 1542. Now, being accused of adultery was perhaps the worst sin you could commit in Henry's eyes, wasn't it? Yes, I mean he was um, he was extremely possessive, and he was also very um, touchy of his his honor and his public prestige. And adultery in a queen consort was technically an act of treason because you could um, you could pervert the succession that way. You could potentially um, provide an illegitimate, unbeknownst, illegitimate child who stood in line to inherit the throne. So it was not only a personal um, crime against a, a very touchy, even egomaniacal man, but also politically, it was regarded as a, as a gross betrayal of the government. How great a sin, though, was the other charge made against her that she had lost her virginity before marriage? Yeah, it, that interestingly seems to be one of, and what I argue in the book is that seems to be one of the things that um, that in, enraged Henry the most. Um, because it was not a crime. He actually um, introduced legislation that made it a crime after 
um, it, it was discovered in Catherine, it was regarded as dishonourable. And for Henry, it was it was it was a, a humiliation he seemed increasingly preoccupied with, even as um, evidence came in that she might have taken a lover after the marriage. He seemed to regard it as someone having stolen something that was his. Quite an ego there, wasn't there? Yes, I mean, Henry, yes. <laughs> there was, I think one of the things that I, I found as I really researched the book was Henry had, a, a, had an enormous ego, yet it was also a fragile ego, and that is usually the most dangerous and volatile kind to have. If you have a, a huge sense of your own importance, but you're also incredibly susceptible to any kind of insult or wound, it makes for a very, very volatile um, figure, particularly if that person is in charge of the government, as he was. Now, how easy was it to research the story, though? I mean, that was a long time ago. It was, but we were very lucky that um, an awful lot of the interrogation records survive, and they're kept in the National Archives of the United Kingdom, uh, just outside London. So a lot of the time was spent there. There's also uh, the Bodleian Library at Oxford, which is wonderful. It keeps a huge cache um, of 16th century um, books, including actually textbooks that they used to uh, educate young um, aristocratic children on things like etiquette and religion and deportment. So there was a lot of time spent in libraries, and, and I also um, retraced the route of, of Catherine's visit to the north of England and, and stayed in sort of 16th century and 17th century inns as I did so. So there's a lot of, of physical places where she, she lived that still exist in England. And I had to translate a lot of those original documents, which was uh, time-consuming. I, I got to recognize um, certain inquisitors' um, handwriting. Um, and so, yes, there was, there was a great deal of research that had to go into it, but it did have the quality almost of a detective story. I mean, you know, particularly translating those interrogation records, some of them for the first time, was um, thrilling, if macabre, and, and very sad in places. Now, so many things royal that are written about require Her Majesty's cooperation. Did you require the cooperation of the royal family today? Uh, generally speaking, um, they are uh, the cooperation of the, the royal household is required um, for documentation that um, is, is in the last century. That's the really tricky part. So I was sort of slightly outside the... the the, um, the awkward period. However, I did um, have to work with the Royal Collection Trust to use several of the portraits of Catherine and her family, and I have to say they were extraordinarily helpful. So my experience with the Royal Household was a, was a very positive one. Um, and they, uh, they have some beautiful, beautiful pieces from the 16th century, but they're, they're very happy for people to use if they properly accredit them. Now, the title of your book, Young, Damned, and Fair, Young, because Catherine was obviously young. How old was she? Well, that was that was um, something that was a little bit of detective work as well, because parish records weren't kept until the next um, decade. But I, my best estimate is that she was prob either eighteen or nineteen um, when she was executed. Probably, uh, my money is on she was nineteen, uh, when, seventeen when she married the king, and nineteen when she was executed. A time when many young girls' hormones are running a little rampant, aren't they? Yes, I mean, I sort of, you know, one thing that really struck me towards the end was, I thought, well, you know, gosh, this is a, this is a girl who essentially 
um, was executed for a time in her life when many of us at college, you know, had dubious, um, you know, maybe had relationships that in the cold light of adulthood we wouldn't have entered into. Um, so, she, yes, I think I think she was. She, I mean, I argue in the book that she was totally smitten with this man whom she was accused of adultery with. And, and we have to, I think we can all, you know, say that in some of our first loves we behaved slightly recklessly. Um, and I think that explains a lot. I mean, people often ask, how could she have been so stupid to have, you know, met with him in, in the middle of the night in palace alcoves and, and that thought she could get away with it? But it's a kind of obfuscating lunacy, I think. I mean, that, what, that happens to us when we fall in love, and I think that you're absolutely right, Peter. That is a time in our lives when the hormones are running wild and first love makes us do stupid things. The fair part, obviously, she was quite beautiful, wasn't she? Yes, I mean, there's a. I managed to find um, accounts from a, a man who had served in the royal household, and several of these people really, I mean, they they commented on her beauty, and that seems to have been something that people around her were, were struck by. You know, one described her as possessing a blazing beauty. Um, another said she was a very beautiful gentlewoman. So yes, she was certainly a, 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 perhaps the most beautiful of Henry's um, wives. Where does the damned part come in from? Well, part of it, I mean, the, the actual title comes from a poem about, um, It's a, it, I found it while I was writing the book. And for me, the reason why I took that quote Damned, I think, was obviously her ending was was horrible, but she was also existing in a, in a time of of really terrifying political uncertainty, and she was married um, to a man who ruled um, by through real kind of cunning, um, but also chaos and terror. And I, I do think that the damned comes from. Yes, her actions, they were, they were at times volition and jaw-droppingly so, but also she was damned by the century and the, and the decade that she lived in. Now, the damned part, I would think, too, comes in by her end. She literally lost her head, didn't she? Yes, she was executed at the Tower of London on, on the 13th of February in 1542, and she, one of the, you know, she was, she was... Uh, she, she'd been raised, her education had placed a great deal of emphasis on aristocratic deportment and honor and dignity. And so her, one of her last acts was that she requested the block be brought to her rooms so she could practice. Um, practice laying her head over and over again so she could get it just right. So there was a, there was a curious um, and very real dignity to how she, she met her death. Now, we know what happened to her then, but what happened to the man she was infatuated with? That man and also the man she was accused of losing her virginity to, they had both been executed two months before. They had been publicly hung, drawn, and quartered um, before a large crowd in the center of London. So it was, it was, a, it was a horrible business. It, it, and many people who had known about it were imprisoned. Um, so it, it claimed several lives, and it ruined dozens. It's, it's astonishing to think the sort of disproportionality, if you like, between the triviality of what she did 
and the consequences that it, that it came to have in a place like Henry VIII's England. It also shows a, shows a double standard, though, because as I recall my history, Henry had lots of special friends while he was married to Catherine as well as other people. Yes, he. Yes, the double standard is is jaw dropping. Um, you know that his second wife Anne Boleyn, when she had had a miscarriage, you know Henry, Henry berated her as she lay trying to recover in, in in her sick bed, and she pointed out that you know her mental health had really not been improved by the sight of him cavorting with his his new mistress, and and it, it was. The double standard is, is one of those things that particularly in the 21st century, when you read about it and you look at it, it is jaw-dropping um, because, it, as you say, there were many, many um, incidences of his infidelity, and yet she was annihilated um, on the suspicion of one. So that is, you're right, it, it does show a society blithely indifferent to the double standard. Now. Yeah. I also understand that if you crossed Henry and were executed, bad things not only happened to you, but happened to your entire family. Yes, there was there was a, a piece of legislation that they could they could trot out called the Act of Attainder, which meant either that they could condemn you to death um, without a trial, and or they could seize all your goods all your earthly goods and thus disinherit um, your entire family. And so often what happened after a treason trial or a case that ended in treason was that there would be a great scramble to try and save something um, for the family. And many families spent years trying to get back some of their inheritance. Um, Catherine had no children. So that, in that sense, um, that, that that her act of attainder didn't spill out into too many other people's lives, but her uncles and aunts who were who were imprisoned for um, for their alleged knowledge of her misdeeds, they tried to hide their silverware. They were trying very, very hard to hide their wealth um, in the hopes that they would be able to to provide for their their children when they got out of prison. Why of all the wives, though? Because there were six of them. Did you choose Catherine Howard? Well, I studied her for my um, postgraduate um, degree at Queen's University in Belfast, and I I wanted to look at the Queen's household, the ladies in waiting, and the male officers who served the Queen. And I looked at a decided. Well, a professor suggested I should look at a short a Queen with a short time period. Um, so I could get into to real depth, and Henry obviously provided several queens who didn't have very long on the throne. And I looked at Catherine Howard, and actually the more and more I researched that in 2011, I realized that the story of Catherine's life was very, very different to how it is usually presented. And so that, in time, over the last five years, led to this biography. Now, given what happened to Catherine Howard, it had to be an act of remarkable bravery for Henry's wife, number six, Catherine Parr, to say, I do. It was remarkable bravery, but it was not without tears. Um, she, she wept by her own admission. Um, she said later that she had wept and tried to get out of it. 
and she prayed. She prayed very, very hard. Um, and she felt that God was calling her to marry him. But her family would have been would have been ruined if she had said no. So it, it took great courage and it cost a great deal of um, emotional stability for Catherine Parr to become his sixth and final queen. But she survived Henry, to say the least. She, she survived, but uh, she survived, yes. But shortly before his death, she had been, um, she was in very hot water about her um, evangelical Protestant views, which were too radical for Henry's taste. And so she came very, very close to ruin as well. So I, I don't think, um, I think those four years as queen for Catherine Parr were mentally very, very draining. What's to learn from the story of Henry and Catherine Howard? Well, the story itself, I think, is a fascinating one. It's, it's, a, it's a unique moment in European history um, of, of flux and this remarkable, um, compelling story of a young queen's rise and fall. And um, I, I quote a merchant who witnessed her execution in the book, and he said the thing itself is well worth the knowledge. But I also think that in its wider, um, in its wider interest, in its wider importance, it is a horrifying window into, as you say, a double standard and into times of political instability, which can allow the seemingly trivial to be magnified into into a disproportionate tragedy. What's your next book, Gareth Russell? <laughs> My next book is, um, I'm working on the minute, it's called The Darksome Barons of a Failing World, and it's about the sinking of the Titanic, but it's told from the perspective of, of six passengers, and it's also um, non-fiction. So I had written about the, um, the collapse of the Austrian, Russian, and German monarchies a few years ago, so the Edwardian period is, is my other great uh, period of interest. Do one of the six, peri- the six passengers you tell the story of um, include the upper 1% of the time? Yes, it's, it's, it's the first-class passengers, and I'm sort of looking at this twilight um, of extraordinary wealth um, and hierarchy. And, and, of course, the Titanic is a perfect metaphor for this twilight because you see it, um, you see its crisis on board the ship as it sank and its interaction with the wider class system. And this, is, of course, is only two years away from the First World War and the annihilation of the Edwardian class system. And so many passengers of the Titanic that both survived and died had their roots here in Philadelphia. Yes, well, um, Philadelphia is one of the places I'll be going to to research um, over the summer. So, and, and I grew up in Belfast, where in Northern Ireland, where it was built. Um, so certainly, I mean, I think you know, Philadelphia was one of the, the great centers um, of, of upper-class American society in the, in the Gilded Age. Um, and I am looking um, to go to Philadelphia over the summer. I'm very much looking forward to it. Well, when that book on the Titanic gets published, please make sure you tell your PR people to give me a call. I will. I I will, absolutely. Because the Titanic is a wonderful story, certainly tragic, but fascinating as well. Yes, I think that's tragic, but fascinating. It's a perfect way to describe it. And I'd like to say thank you to Gareth Russell, his new book. Thank you. Young, Damned, and Fair, the story of Henry VIII, and wife number five, Catherine Howard. Tragic and telling. Thank you, Gareth. Great. Thank you very much, Peter. My pleasure.
And it's Thank you. Been, Bye-bye. Bye. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinion, Sonny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.